Every entrepreneur is a unique story, but we share some common ground. Piconope offers a fresh perspective on your entrepreneurial challenges, because someone has certainly been through them before. Even if you do not have any business problems, no worries, listening is anonymous. Welcome to The Seed Podcast with Uros Cimjar. Hi, I've been an entrepreneur since my days at university, and I have always loved learning from the more experienced. Even today, I look at every conversation as an opportunity to learn. Matt Mayfield is the co-founder of BizExpand, a company that helps you reach product market fit for outbound lead generation and scale your business. Matt is an expert at quickly learning about new industries and finding unique methods to enter new market segments. US-born, he moved to Slovenia in 2000 as he became the director of sales in Hermes Soft Lab, afterwards Comtrade. Before co-founding BizExpand, he worked as a sales executive in both Europe and the US in various global industrial and technology companies such as Datalab, D-Labs, Zemanta and also in about 10 startups. He's a regular startup and seed mentor, board member and sales operations advisor also outside of BizExpand. In today's episode, we talk about lead generation in connection with sales. Why do you need product market fit on segment level? How to build an outbound lead generation machine and how to include SDRs in the process? What are some of the best practices for outbound lead generation tactics? Stay tuned and listen to today's episode of Piconope Podcast. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining us here today. Pleasure, Rosh. So, let's say sales, marketing, there's a divide. Nobody is sure where it is. And mm. most of the time, I would say it's called a lead, let's say. And okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I have a bit of a controversial because uh, position is I always, I think it was Jaka Leostik said I was a, a marketing skeptic, and I think that's a completely fair description. I, I believe in lead generation. I believe in things that help lead generation. And for me, the, the distinction between marketing and lead generation Uh, I, I'm completely enthusiastic about anything that generates leads and anything that is several steps removed, I get bored with and, and see that often as a distraction. <laughs> okay, so let's say maybe a question. I was a part of several conversations uh, mm -hmm. that started. This lead was not of a good quality, let's say. Yeah. So what's a quality lead in your opinion? Yeah, that's really important. Anytime you have leads... Uh, the lead generation separated from sales. A, it's wildly powerful if you can do it, right? Because what you see is, is you know, typically in old school selling or, you know, when you're just improvising and pulling things off, you had salespeople that had to generate their own pipeline, generate their own leads. And generating leads sucks, right? It's really painful. You just... You go grind it out, and you, you what I used to think about it is sort of like sales gym. You know, you just go in and lift weights, right? It's not yeah. playing football. And if there's if there's matches to be won, why would you want to go into the gym? And this is the problem. As soon as you have any pipeline, as soon as you have any pressure to reach a number, uh, lead generation just goes in the toilet, and nobody does anything. And then suddenly you're in this problem, which is I can't not close these because I have no pipeline behind it to backfill. And so separating those two is really good because you, you keep the pace going, right? There's always a new lead. So I, I, I don't cling to things that maybe should never close or 
would close with such incredible efforts, it wouldn't be worth it. Or it's really not a great match for my company and our ability to deliver is somewhat limited. So I think I love splitting the two, but the reason why it doesn't work normally is because the prospect, you know, your, your, your potential customer, they're just meeting you and their bullshit detector is on, you know, volume level 11, right? And, and any yeah. two people will describe the same thing slightly, slightly different. And that will fire off that bullshit detector. So when, when Igor goes and introduces the company and then Marco goes and introduces the company exactly the same except a few different words, that potentially can be seen as a signal from the client, from the prospect, that this is not genuine. This isn't good. So it's super hard to get those two to get those two to match. And the reason I'm telling you all of this is because usually what you see is um, where all these programs break down is that the the guys who are doing the leads goes, "This is a brilliant one. This one's perfect." And then the salesperson shows up to the meeting and goes, "Why the hell did you set this one up? This is an absolute garbage." What changed? What changed was that prospects engagement right as soon as they smell bullshit as soon as they've lost confidence that they should trust this they're out it's a horrible lead it's a disastrous meeting nothing is good and it's maintaining that continuity of building a little bit of trust on a little bit of trust on a little bit of trust that's what's so critical so what you see is so there, there, there is this natural problem that even if you guys could agree on a whiteboard and you have 9,000 items on the list, there is a certain percentage that are just going to fall apart because of that small dis, disconnect there. Yeah. That said, that means you just have to be super good at it. And that, that going up on a whiteboard and agreeing on exactly what is a, um, what is a good lead. So what you see in a lot of... What most companies do is have the concept of lead acceptance. So you agree on what the criteria is for a lead. It's a document. Everybody signs off on it. It's living. It changes occasionally. But there is Q1 2022. This is our definition of an A-grade lead. Yeah. And the first thing that the salesperson has to do when they get the lead is agree that that was a grade A lead, right? From, from the data that's provided to them, was it there? And then, so basically, your, your lead generation team, their, their mission is to get qualified meeting, grade A qualified meeting accepted, QMAs, and, and drive to that. And holding those two really tight together is the key. So let's say in your mind, if I heard you correctly, it's not just about, let's say, the quality of prospect or the, let's say, the feature set or the, not the features, the, the stuff written in this document, but also about the process, let's say. So, so yeah, so it's the, it, what you need is buy-in from both sides, right? Because the, they, they need to be, they need each other. That's the other issue is, is, you know, is there mutual dependence or are we just throwing some additional leads on? So it's, it's a high trust area. And one of the interesting things is you typically see SDR lead generation before the, the famous book, Predictable Revenue by Ross, it was always in marketing. And now you see often SDR is actually outbound SDR at least is usually done in sales. And it's because you want one roof, 
you know, the, the career path of an SDR is often into sales and you need to build that high trust. So you, you'll also often see them pairing. So you would do something like have one SDR feeding one salesperson and match them up. So I know that you helped several companies implement this process. Can you maybe lead us through this? Where do you start when you come into a company? So mm. what's the first thing that should be done? Right. So I've done a number of companies, quite a few, where they've never done outbound SDR. So the first thing is, you know, what you often see is that companies have tried to generate leads outbound. Maybe they have one salesperson who was good for a while, but either doesn't want to do it or kind of ran out of gas. Um, and so the, the first step is figuring out what is the right customer you want to sell to. And I think that's really key. And that, that goes in parallel with figuring out what is the key value that a cold prospect might find interesting. So I'll give you an example. So if we said, say, something like accounting software, ERP. Uh, ERP has, I don't know, 45 modules and, you know, 10 million lines of code and 600 benefits and 30 different roles utilizing that. If you're going to try and do an outbound campaign, there's just, if in your allotted 0.7 seconds of attention, there's just no way you can communicate that. So you can have to boil it down to one thing that is of you know, immediate action and of interest that is potentially going to get them to take enough action that they would accept a meeting with you. So you can't talk about everything. You're going to talk about, I don't know, uh, uh, inventory management, or you're going to talk about HR, HR uh, payroll compliance, or, you know, the something like that. I mean, my experience is a lot of times, let's say, product companies are aware of the, let's say, their product, but not so much of the benefits that their product provide to their end customers. So where do you start then? Let's say you come into a company, they say, okay, we want to engage you to help us with sales process. And then you start with like marketing-like questions. Yeah. So they're probably confused. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, one of the businesses I'm in, I helped co-found was a company called BizExpand in Austria. And we do yeah. uh, leads. SDR is a service for the German speaking market. And we used to just sort of send them a form or ask them, what is the pitch? And it just, it went nowhere. And one of the key values we now do is we start with two, three hour sessions. And day one of that three hour session is we just beat the hell out of them on what they think their value is, what they think is unique, what they think is compelling and interest in interesting. And, and the best ones really appreciate this. So who in the company actually knows that? Yeah, it's got to be customer-facing people. That's the other thing. You don't need the marketing people who are good at writing words. You need instead the founders, the uh, all the customer-facing delivery people, the the salespeople. You need a couple of them in there with some good, open, creative mind and a tough session of just, you know, what is truly unique about what we're offering. So if we're offering, let's just use something I know. You know, I used to work with Data Lab. And if we're going to try and sell Pantheon in Austria, which, by the way, never was imagined, but let's just say that that was the dream. What is the reason why Austrian customers need a new ERP? It's obvious why Data Lab would want to be in Austria. There's money. Now the question is, why would Austrians need 
data lab? Why would they take a risk with a company from, you know, Czechoslovenia to yeah. provide them ERP? And, and that is, that's the hard question, right? What makes it unique? And digging into that and figuring out what that is, that then in parallel tells you about who is your first block of customers. I'm not saying this is every customer you want, but outbound is about high speed sniper shots, right? You only call people you're fairly certain would be a great match for your company, that there would be high value and high interest. How do you then go from this benefit that you identify to a cost, potential customer segment, let's say, to the, to the list? Right. So once you know what makes your product unique, right? So let's just say, I don't know, let's see data lab. What could be, what could we invent? Uh, that's not true, but, but is useful for the discussion. Um, let's just say that they had something that was e-signature compliant. Yeah. So now what you would say is, okay, e-signature compliance in an ERP at every stage of the process. So who's interested in that? Is that big companies? Is that small companies? Is that uh, people who are in highly regulated industries? Is that low regulated industries? Is it little agile companies, little new agile companies, or is this large, stable multinationals? And then is this, is this uh, fast growing or sort of low, low speed followers? And, and it's just basically you ask yourself, okay, that's what's compelling about this product. What are the user groups and how do we think about that? And, and here's the funny thing. At the end of the day, I do this all the time, right? BizExpand, we, we do, you know, one or more than one per month, probably two per month we're doing this. And we're only about 80% accurate. I mean, at the end of the day, you come up with these great theories and this great understanding. Now, granted, we can be right four out of five times. Most people are right one out of 10 times if you're just new to this. But uh, you just see that there's just a certain percentage you can't guess. And that's what's cool about Outbound is you get this really good, strong, it gets the meetings, it doesn't get the meetings. And you get that immediate feedback. Yeah, and it's also a, it's a feedback loop. Absolutely. You get the feedback loop of why you don't, why, why you don't get the meeting. That's another one that we, we see a lot is uh, before you do, say, Outbound, the only people that contact you are people who are predisposed to your way of thinking. And when you start to go outbound, you start to realize there's a huge number of people who don't believe what you have. Like, you know, I need to control my workforce and I build a tool that is really great at really monitoring and checking and making sure that my workforce is disciplined and not cheating me. Well, that's great. And I can imagine that your ERP product could be really attractive. But if you think the world wants that, you're out of your mind because there's a very large percentage of the population that says, I have a great workforce. I want to make sure that they know I'm trusting them. And I want them to know that there's consequences that I'm not big brother monitoring and checking and following them. I want them to feel empowered and I want them to be nervous about how they, that the decisions they take are final decisions and have real consequence in the real world. World, Two completely different philosophies of products. And you often get blindsided by one because you've never talked to those. Yeah. And it also, let's say on the customer side, let's say I was a target a few times, let's say I was in this on this list. Mm -hmm. And to me, when let's say sales development reps contact me as yours and if done right it was a great experience because in two or three minutes i either knew of new product that would suit me 
Yeah. Or they just say, okay, this is what we're doing. Maybe you're not fit. Let's <laughs> talk in 12 months or something like that. That's so the, it's, yeah, that's the thing. And it's all that front-end work, right? If you still are under the idea that your product could be for everybody in the world, then it's probably not going to be a great experience because, you know, again, just think of the most primitive way, which is my product does lots of things for lots of different customer groups. So I'm going to contact Nobat almost everybody, and then I'm going to tell them about all the great things my product does, and then I'm going to see what gets them excited. That is going to be a horrible experience for everybody that's on the other end of that. Wait, you're going to interrupt my day and start what? That's no good, right? What you want is I'm contacting you because I have exactly the solution that people like you typically need Here's how you know if you're interested in that. And here's how you know that we can actually solve that. Here's the other people we've solved this for. And now let's talk. Yeah. And my question is connected to that. How do you make this initial contact efficient? That's mm. So it's not a phishing cave. Maybe there's a fit. But how do you structure the conversation or let's say or the whole sequence of contacts so that it's efficient for both of them? participants for the potential customer and for the company. Yeah. So what I see a lot is that people who try and do this themselves that have never done this before, what they typically do is they make a couple wrong assumptions. The first assumption is that people answer an email and they don't. My wife doesn't answer the first email. Nobody answers the first email. So that's the first reality. You know, so, so an outbound campaign of one single email will never get anything, even if people are really interested. The, the second important rule is you're, you're trying to bring in the customers. You're, you're trying to get them. It's, any sales is a series of what's the strongest commitment I can get for the day? What's the strongest close for the day? And if you're doing an outbound email, the strongest thing you can say is, would you spend one second looking at me? Would you spend five seconds checking out our website or reading the rest of this message? Would you spend 15 seconds reading something on a website? Would you spend 40 seconds deciding whether you want a meeting? Would you spend uh, two minutes organizing the meeting? Would you spend 30 minutes on a meeting with me? Would you spend 45 minutes on follow-up and a follow-on meeting? And then we start to go into proper pipeline. That's, that's kind of the sequence. So it's all, how do I get from 0.2 seconds of attention to one second of attention to seven seconds of attention? That's, that's where things start to fall down, right? AIDA selling, right? Attention, interest, decision, right? It's the attention, interest. So how do we do that? It depends on the industry. So you see things like uh, Zamanta, uh, they're going after in the beginnings when they were doing pure outbound. Uh, they were doing second tier ad agencies. Well, there it was all these like short GIF videos and signs and personalization and, you know, jump up and down. You see this a lot in the U.S. where it's like, yeah, I see you're a, you're a Virginia Tech Hokie football fan and our team just won and I'm going to reach out and try and get your attention this way. This works out pretty good there. This, this is the kind of thing you need to punch through the noise. That's not going to roll in Finland or Germany, right? That, that, that's just not the way you do it. Uh, but you still need to get their interest. And, and the single easiest ways to get their interest is real content. 
right? Real information, real solutions to a pain that they have. I mean, there's just no, no easier way. I mean, I always think about this, having a solution that can't find a customer. Why waste your time? Slovenia and the world is full of people with solutions that actually have real customers that want it. For me, one of the most effective, let's say, cold emails, a type of cold emails I got mm -hmm. was start with the question, if this is my problem. Probably it's yeah. risky because if they also solve some other problem that I do have, but they didn't mention. So that's a really good point. So we often see this, right, which is I can, let's just say it's ERP I'm selling. And I can sit there and say, well, I can solve your, your HR compliance issue, but I can also fix your inventory management problem. When you do outbound, you have to choose. You cannot do a campaign with both. What you can do, though, is you can do a campaign with, I don't know, let's say HR compliance. You can then follow up some months later and do another one on inventory management. Or you can do inventory management to one group and HR compliance to another group. That also works. But you have to pick one and stick to it. But I think there's a couple rules in all of this. So one is timing matters, which is we, we, we did the analysis. We were really good at, at data analysis with Samantha. And we would run a campaign uh, you know, let's say it was 500 names and we would get a certain yield of meetings out of that or opportunities created out of that. And then we would 90 days later run them through a new cadence and all the ones that didn't respond or responded, you know, negatively, we'd throw them into that cadence and it'd be slightly less numbers instead of 500, it's 450. And what we saw is we got nearly identical yield. You know, so how is that that you can take the olives and squeeze them a second time and get nearly the same yield? The answer is we kept doing that over and over again. And we saw through the next four quarters, we could get almost identical yields quarter after quarter after quarter. Now, the messages were slightly different, but the single biggest thing we pulled out of this is people have to be in a, in a you have to hit them at the right time. That's the single biggest barrier. If you did your job right and you have a great solution and you know exactly these are the people that typically have the problem, your biggest barrier is getting their attention and is this the right time? And the two kind of work together. So if you know that this is the, this is the right person and I'm doing something that gets their attention, I can either be more aggressive and risk that it blows up in my face or I just need to be a little bit patient. It may not be this quarter, but it might be next quarter. And it might be the quarter after that. And if you do it in a professional, high-integrity manner, they don't get too upset. And you, One of the things you see is you can send off an email and say, look, I, I feel like I'm wasting your time on this. Would, you, would it be okay if I took you off the list? And, and the funny thing, that they call this a breakup message. And when you do this sort of thing, what you often find is people say no. You know, I've been looking at this email. I've been thinking I should do something. I just never got around to it, right? We all have these things in our life where we know, I know I should have life insurance. I never get around to life insurance. I use this as an example all the time, right? So if somebody said to me, I've got, you know, I represent 25 life insurance and I can do 30% off the normal pricing, would you be interested to see what we do? I would probably sit there and say, well, not today, but I'm going to keep that in my email. And if somebody yeah. said, hey, would it be okay if I took you off? No, keep pestering me. It's something I need to do. So, so I think that's, that's the key. High integrity, hitting the right timing. 
So it's not like the kids in the back of the car are we there yet. So every yeah. five minutes, but let's say spread out through a quarter or something like that. Yeah, my general timing is in the US, you can do about every 90 days. In Germany and most of Europe, about every six months is probably good. So you want to do, you know, six to nine months. In the US, you can do around 90 days and do it. So, and then the other big difference is US versus Europe is, you know, the intensity. So, for example, you would typically do three channels, maybe like a 12 step, 12 touch. So how many times do I actually make contact and how many different ways? So, for example, email, phone and, and I don't know, LinkedIn. So in a, in a European campaign, I would normally recommend like two channel. In a U.S. campaign, I would normally recommend a three channel. And again, U.S. would be on a lower number, maybe something like between five and eight touches in total, spread out over a relatively long period of time. U.S., you'd probably want the same relatively long period of time, but it'd probably be more like 12 touches. Americans are just used to it in higher tolerance. Okay. Tolerance is the great keyword. How, but let's say, how prescriptive are you, let's say, in this phase? Let's say, so do sales development reps go through some kind of training? Uh, should they follow a script? Is there room for improvisation? Yeah, there's two basic two basic approaches to this. So one is where you have high freedom SDRs, and then there's situations where you have low freedom SDRs. And if we're doing it here in Europe, in Slovenia, you're probably better off with the low freedom SDRs, where you're going to have a very specific script. You're going to have them. You're almost going to take the SDRs and break them into research role, execution role, objection handling role, and so. In a lot of, for example, our biz expand in, in DAC region, we are on, you know, high discipline, low freedom mode. Even the objection handling would be best, you know, would be written up in a document for all the SDRs to follow. There's almost no freedom. In contrast, uh, you know, I work with uh, like a New York company like Code Climate who does uh, software uh insight into software engineering teams, their SDRs, they basically invent concepts. They figure out what is the messaging. They're, they're still using a tool like Outreach or Sales Loft or something like that, and they're copying from each other things that are working. But, I mean, we had, I was just there re sitting down with the guys recently, and like one of the guys' last name was Park. So he found every potential customer that he could possibly find. So he's doing actually his own sourcing even that had the last name Park. And that was his gimmick for that month was basically reach out to everybody that had the same last name, even if they weren't of the same national origins, just to do that. Another one, he went to UNLV, so uh, Nevada, Las Vegas University. And it was everybody that went to the same university and they were going to go ahead and hit that. So these themes and the idea, there's so much more creativity. It's more like a marketing agency. And they would... I was listening to the recordings because they would, uh, in a U.S. high-end system, you'd use tools like Gong and, and record all of these calls and put them into the CRM system. Or Outreach and Sales Loft would have integrated telephony as well. And you're just listening to them. And cold calling is back. It does work again for the after a very long time, but it's very much personality-driven. And most of these SDRs see their role as I'm proving myself so I can become a real salesperson. And there's a real ladder. So this is this is how I earn my chops to get decent money. 
So why then in Europe you are more, let's say, low freedom because of the national <laughs> personality on a national level, or I'd say it's both. It's both the supply and the demand in the sense that your customer expectation. There's there's a much so what I tend to do here in Europe is I like uh, so an SDR messaging is it authentic or is it polished marketing right these two things you you see these you see these these SDRs that you cannot I mean a, a great example again BizExpand we were looking for some new clients in New York. And I remember having a meeting with one and she was saying, oh, how did you know our VP of sales something something? And she had no idea she was talking to an automated sequence that those emails and an SDR team, she had no idea because we were actually doing it with what's called a phantom email, right? So it was another email address that says Matt Mayfield, but I didn't control it. The SDR team did and the automation tools did. But even though that's what we're selling, it never occurred to her that the messaging we were sending was anything but authentic and handwritten. And that's one approach to doing it. And then in that particular world, you intentionally make mistakes. You don't put nice glossy pictures. You don't get the font and you don't put emojis in the titles. It doesn't work. The second is you can have a polished marketing style one. Um, so what I tend to see is that in Europe, I like the, the phantom personalities rather than the SDR as a personality. So in New York, the SDRs are known by name. They have their own LinkedIn profiles. They have their own personality and they go here. I find it much easier to just basically mimic who the salesperson is, use a, a highly controlled message and make it look authentic. So it's going to be lighter weight, less aggressive, uh, but it's going to be coming from somebody of higher integrity. I wouldn't even do qualification by the SDR. I would do all my qualification externally if I possibly could. What do you mean by that? That you would do qualification externally? So, do I think this is the right person? So, is this does this person have you know you you talk about bant, budget, authority, uh, need, and uh, timing? Well based on what their position is in LinkedIn, you can kind of get some idea of, do they have authority? Now you might discover later that that title wasn't matching the reality, but do they have budget and is there timing and do they have the need? Well, they're in this industry and I have this title from my perspective. I'd rather put an AE in front of them rather than somebody else who's going to do qualification. Right. Meetings are valuable and it doesn't take very long for a real salesperson to do a 15 minute qualification call and jump directly into the meat of what they're going to sell. So unless it's a very low value product, I basically want to move the barrier as low as possible. Basically, I want to have rules of who we want to talk to. But as soon as we can get the meeting, we go. So I'm all for um, in Europe. I want to use. I want to use uh, high integrity, low intensity, um, things that don't look marketing, and I want to do it in a very prescribed control way so I can see the mathematics of how this is going. In the U.S., I know the mathematics of how this is going to go. It's going to suck. There's so much traffic and so much stuff going there, and I know the guys are going to have to get so aggressive they're going to piss somebody off. So I need disposable people. So I go get John from Brooklyn, who's afraid of nothing, and have him go harass potential customers up to the point that it really is brand damaging. 
uh, but it's going to be that person. And that person is trying to build themselves up as a salesperson. So here in Europe, again, I can use SDRs that aren't at all aggressive, don't want to become salespeople as a career. Uh, cold calling, I, I, it does work. I have seen it. I, I just saw it recently done with manufacturing in Germany. Scares the hell out of me with GDPR and German mentality, but it does work. So it, it, it could work to, to do that. But again, normally we find we work pretty good with email and LinkedIn. So you mentioned a few times now different uh, software mm. to support the process. What would you actually recommend to somebody just starting with, uh, let's say, this mm. outbound outreach? Yeah. So, I mean, for smaller companies, Lemlist is my go-to tool. Uh, for people who are, you know, bigger companies that are using Salesforce, there's Outreach and SalesLoft. They're both pretty, they're both good and equally, equally good. I don't see, I've, I've switched between them in two different companies and I don't see noticeably any big difference between the two. I think the key is how you use the tool, right? So, so all these tools will get the job done. Now the question is, what's going to be your recipe? That's the hard part, right? What is my cocktail? What's my baseline? As soon as you get your first campaigns that start working, you're, you're off and running. You can now optimize. The problem is finding that first campaign that gets some traction. And my colleague in Vienna, Martin, he, he showed this nice mathematical equation, which is it's your tactics times your strategy times your message, times your, your uh, target audience, times your product that you're, your feature that you're pushing, right? It's a multiplication problem. And anytime there's a zero in any point of that, you, there's, that means not only do you get no customers, but you get no, lear you get no learning, right? No, a really bad campaign, you don't even get people to say, I'm not interested. They, they just ignore you. That's, that's a big key thing. So we, we had a client from Croatia that was doing database uh, uh, anonymization. Great. Sounds like an interesting product. There's people who need that for GDPR compliance. Let's anonymize people's databases and sell to engineering departments in things like banks. Nothing, 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 nothing. You know, this is one of those slight surprises. Couldn't even get enough interest for no's until we did hundreds of names And you just, so the, the, the key thing though is, is figuring out a recipe that works. And that's, that's the hard part for a company that's never done outbound before is what's your baseline starting reference point? Because when you're not getting feedback, you can't figure out whether it's the messaging, whether it's the product that I'm offering, who I'm targeting, or whether it's the sequence of steps I'm doing and the timing between those sequences, the keywords, the subject titles, There's 12 ways you get it wrong. And so it just, it takes cycles. So That, no, no shortcut to dig yourself out of this kind of hole. I mean, look, you can hire a professional company that can get you a starting point earlier, yeah. right? That's the big thing is, is they've done this several times. And so they've got some baselines that are likely to be more successful, but messaging, especially really different uh, segment market segmentation. This is always going to be very special. And, and, and the fact that it may take more than one try, that's not unusual, right? It's, it's really hard to get the first try out. Okay. What about, let's say now you have this first part of the process set up. It actually generates some leads. Uh, yeah. 
how sensitive is the process of transferring the leads now to the let's say the closing team to the actual salesperson? Yeah. So again, in Vienna, the the BizExpand company, there what we're doing is we're using what's a, a phantom email strategy, which is basically we have another email that's the same name as the the salesperson who will take the meeting. The meeting maker is the word we use for it. So the transition is essentially zero, right? Because as far as the customers, as far as the prospect is concerned, they've always been talking to that person. All the communication has been clear and has been agreed to upfront. So there's no difference. I mean, the, the, the salesperson, when they step into it, can review the, but they already know what the sequences were and what the text is. So they walk into the meeting pretty clean and that's really good. Where I see the next, so that works out really good. When you do the high freedom mode, like we're doing in New York, that becomes more problematic. And there, what usually works better, we did this with Samantha, is the SDR would actually invite the prospect to the meeting. They would, would be the host, and they would be the ones that said, ah, I have my salesman, Michal, and Michal is nice enough to sort of walk us through, you know, he's, he's really a real expert in this market. I'm going to let him step in and, and take over a bit here today. You know, yeah. thanks for joining us, Urush. Here's Michal's the right guy. And there, then it's much smoother because also the SDR can step in and say, remember when I was telling you about this, what Michal is saying is just the same thing. It's slightly different, right? So you, you actually have them listen. And that helps also that they hear how Michal describes it so that then when they do their SDR research, it's more... It, when they're pitching for the meeting, they're using more similar terminology, reducing the chance that it breaks. They're both on the call, so they both can agree it was garbage, or they can both agree that it was good. It really helps a lot. So that's that's if you do high freedom, you want the SDR on the call with the salesperson. So it's not a throw over the fence. Yeah, so let's say now the process is running, and you want to optimize it. Mm. Uh, how do you approach Why? that? I don't know. Why? I would argue why, right? Because if you just think about it, marketing has a budget, yeah. right? They're going to spend this much money. Ford Motor Company will spend the same amount of money on marketing, more or less, each year, whatever. Sales, you don't care about the budget. If I told you I can bring you customers, Urush, for 200 euros a piece, how many do you want? And the answer is all of them. Bring me every customer, every prospect in the world for 200 euros. For 20,000, not so many, thank you. So the answer is once you get a cost of sale that's affordable, you basically want them all. So it's not about optimizing. It's about expanding and making sure that you have enough runway and enough targets to do that. Okay, but let's say that when you start, okay, you get some leads, but cost of sales is too high. What, what does this, this mean? It's not yet? I'd, I'd say the bigger, the bigger, the bigger issue is... Um, I mean, so cost of sales could be too high. You're not going to optimize. You're not going to optimize for cost reduction. You're going to optimize because the market is only so big and you don't want to squander them. You don't want to waste those leads, right? So the number of second tier ad agencies in the United States is a fixed number. So for Zamanta, the only reason we care about efficiency is not so much so we can get them faster because we know how to get them faster. We just press harder, you know. More, more, more uh, limb list outreach sales loft machines and off you go. 
No, what you want is you want to make sure that you can only touch them. Once you touch them in a sequence, you can't touch them again for 90 days. So if you burn through 500 names and you get zero meetings, crap, you know, this is not good. This is, there's only 4,000 or 8,000 in the entire country. So what am I going to do? So I think that's where efficiency comes in. And what you want to do is, you know, you have more than efficiency. How can I reduce the blowback, the negative consequences of what I'm doing? So what steps can I remove? All the tools will tell you that. All the tools will tell you like which, which message is getting a response better. They, they all have that stuff built in. But I worry about those tools. Like Outreach has one where they use AI to try to automatically change the AB proportions. And I saw, I saw this one SDR who just threw in a whole bunch of copy-paste paragraphs he saw from his colleagues and then just said, look, I'm just going to let the AI figure out which paragraph works best. No, because it made no cohesive sense, right? The first email was talking about one thing. The second email was talking about something else. The third email was talking about the same thing, but a completely different tone. It didn't build, right? And, you know, so one of the things, st storytelling still matters, right? It's just like sale, good sales and marketing is still the same. I need to start wide. I need to get your interest to just spend some more time. Maybe look at an early blog article, you know, not shift into sales too early. You don't go for sex the very first engagement. So the call to action is soft and light at the beginning and goes hard and strong later on. Designing that, that that's important in that sequence. So I think efficiency matters. It, it matters that, that how do I do it with the least impact, the least negative impact on a customer, and how do I get my best yield because I can only touch them so many times. That's, that's where efficiency comes in. Cost, not, not really an issue. Is there a type of industry that, in your opinion, this kind of process is not suitable for? Hmm. Well, I'll tell you, right now I'm doing one for the legal German law firms of major, German legal departments of major corporations. Scares the hell out of me, right? Because, you know, GDPR and you're going to reach out cold emails uh, to a legal person. So far, I'm starting this one out and running it crazy slow. And... Uh, we're seeing how this does. This is, um, so far it's been okay, but this is one I'm, I'm very nervous about. What have we not done? You're, you're probably not going to do very well with like school districts and teachers. Uh, you're not going to do well with, um, surprisingly though, things like manufacturing works very good. So where you tend to do worst is where there's, LinkedIn tends to be the main tool because it allows you to know a lot about the prospect. So places where LinkedIn isn't particularly strong. So Germany, historically, although that's always better. Russia uh, is not so good. I have not tried Asia. The biggest reason is, is going to be who's already getting pressure. So if you want to say IT managers of uh, Mittelstadt or above companies in Berlin, and you're going to try and contact them with your software solution or your outsourced services, you know, they're getting 11 of those a day. In San Francisco, VP of engineering, good luck. You know, there, there I put my best efforts and hired this crazy expensive consulting firm to try and help, and we, we still got nothing. I mean, it just the, the, the yield rates were just way, way, way too low. Okay, so with all these experiences, let's say, what's the best things the company get out of this process, and what's the worst thing for them? Okay, so the, there's a couple key benefits, right? You're going to, especially if your business is driven on referrals, 
then this is great because you break into new referral pools. So for example, if you're selling engineering services, if, if you can suddenly get a cluster of customers in Switzerland, what you normally see with like services companies is they're almost entirely referral driven and their customer base is in the community of their existing customers. That's where their prospects come from. So if you can break into a new pool of customers, that then has referral potential beyond that. And that works out really good. Uh, the other benefit is that you typically get some cocktail effects where that helps some of your inbound. By doing outbound, your inbound raises. I don't know exactly the mechanics, but that almost always seems to be the way. And I think the last thing that's really good about outbound is it forces you to be disciplined about what it is, who is it I really serve, and what is it that I really offer that's unique and valuable? That that discipline of trying to think that through and the confrontation with the reality, do people agree with you enough that they're willing to have 30 minutes on a phone? When that isn't true, boy, that is, that's great. And, and it's, nothing is cheaper and faster than to do that outbound. Any negatives of this process? The negatives, the negative is, um, I mean, it doesn't work all the time. That's one of the ones. And number two is it's it's not highly efficient in the sense that you're not finding people that are ready and motivated to go. You often have to nurture them right there. You're hitting them before they've already started to take action. So that's a big negative. Reputational damage is the other. The other thing is there's a lot of... of I see this all the time where their their internal team got a tool. And that's why when you asked me about tools, I was like, oh, God, no. Because they get a tool for either newsletters or an outbound email, and they fuck up their domain. And now suddenly their proposals aren't getting to their client. Uh, so there's a lot of things you can do to damage your digital reputation and your company reputation. So maybe the last question is, how can, let's say, a small, medium-sized company prepare them to then start this process efficiently. What's the homework they should do before, let's say, contact somebody like you? Okay, so, I mean, look, if you're going to work with um, with somebody who's an expert in the field, like you've hired a consultant or you're hiring an agency or you're going to poach somebody who's been doing this before, there's not much homework, right? You're, the biggest thing is just to, you can do a little bit of thinking about who is my customer and what is my, my product. Do I have something that can, what, what we see in this region is a lot of people are using outbound to expand their market reach, right? They're, they're going after a new market segment. So that's, that's the one thing you can do. But if you're, if you're going to bring in somebody with some skills already in this area, there's not too much preparation. Finding that person, I guess, is the big thing. The, the next thing is if you're going to do it yourself, then, you know, what you can do is I would say something like Lemlist and their forums. All this stuff is online. There is tons and tons of feedback into this. But go slow and don't break too much stuff too fast. That would be my, my, big, my big advice, right? You know, start sourcing with some small numbers, running them through a sequence, uh, seeing how you can get some results. Go slow and careful and build. Don't just uh, fill a garbage can full of names, dump it into a machine and hit play at max speed. Um, you'll, you'll just burn through them. If you're doing this on your own, assume that it'll take you three tries. 
three radically different tries. If you're doing it with an expert or a consultant, assume it'll take you two, maybe three. But it'll take you three to five if you do it on your own. Matt, thank you uh, for, let's say, leading us through this process. I think it will be a great start for many of the listeners. And thanks to everybody who listened to us till the end. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks so much, Orish. Are you an entrepreneur? You want to grow faster, but don't know how? Join the conversation at SIT Slovenia, where like-minded entrepreneurs and founders share experiences and know-how. More on www.ceed.si. Pick on up a podcast where sharing experiences supports your business growth.